All right. Morning, everyone. Good to see all of you again. We had a great night last night. I hope, hope you did as well. Nice breakfast at the hotel with my son this morning. So some uh, few years ago, I was invited to speak at this marriage conference, and they had a planning meeting where they brought in the, the three keynote speakers, and we're kind of going to go around the room and share the messages that we want to deliver at this conference. And so I was the third person to, to share, and the, the first gentleman said that he was going to talk about husbands loving their wives, and then the second speaker said that, that he was going to talk about communication or conflict. And so then it came to me and I thought, well, this gentleman said he's going to talk about husbands loving their wives. And so the, I don't hear any specific instruction for wives. So I said, well, I, I can talk about uh, wives submitting to their husbands. And like the moment I said that, it was like all the air is just sucked out of the room and you know, people kind of looked down, and, and there was a, it wasn't just the speakers there. It was all the people that were involved in planning this marriage conference. And it, it was cl- pretty evident I had said something that I shouldn't have said. And, you know, people are, they have their hands over their heads like this, and they're kind of, cr- it's like super cringeworthy. And then finally someone <laughs> breaks the silence, and he speaks up and says, well, you know, I don't, I don't really like to use the word submit. And I think he, he might have been a pastor and he says, well, I'll generally say like defer, and he comes up with all these other words versus saying the word submit. And then we had to go shoot these promotional videos for kind of like commercials, because it was this radio station. And I probably had to record my commercial the, uh, more than everyone else combined, because they wanted to do everything they could to make sure that I didn't use the word submit, I guess. And I had, had to keep going over. And if I go to speak somewhere, I want to be a blessing. I don't want to create fires for people to have to put out. And so I did, I did end up getting to uh, preach on wives submitting to their husbands. But the thing that was particularly troubling about that was that I think everyone that reads through the New Testament can see that that's what it says, that it commands wives to submit to their husbands. And, and more than that, it's not vague. It's not arbitrary. It's a repeated command. It's actually one of the most common commands in the, in the New Testament. It occurs in Ephesians 5:22, 24, Colossians 3:18, Titus 2, 1 Peter 3. So five different places. This actually every time a wife is mentioned, there is an accompanying command for her to submit to her husband, which shows how inextricably these are linked. And so <clears throat> I share that because it just reveals how uncomfortable this this topic can be. I hope that won't be the case. I understand submission has been abused. I do want to be sensitive to that. I do understand that in in churches and in marriages, people have misused submission to mistreat women or perhaps even abuse women. And so I'll try to be sensitive to that. And this brings us to our first lesson on page six. Submission is necessary. As we kind of ease into this, submission is necessary. So if you think about the structure of any organization or business or team or school, you're going to see leadership. Individuals in leadership, businesses have CEOs, sports have coaches, organizations have presidents, schools have principals, but you never see what? You never see, let's say, two heads, right? There's always president and what? You never see two presidents, there's always president and vice president. In schools, there's a principal and there's, pi- there's a pilot, we flew here, there's a pilot and uh, and, you know, even in the operating room, you, there's a head surgeon, and you don't want to be operated on two head surgeons that are arguing about what, what part of you to be, you know, operating on, right? And so my point is, 
Every area of life recognizes the need for headship and submission or recognizes the need to have one head but not two, but people fail to apply that same wisdom to the marriage relationship. Colossians, or, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3, the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So we're going to be talking about a wife's submission to her husband, but based on this verse, we can see that there's actually only one person, capital P person, who is not submitted to someone else. So one more time, the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So women have men as their head, men have Christ as our head, and then Christ himself has God as his head. So even Christ is, is uh, not without headship. So with an understanding of the need for submission, let's discuss what submission should and shouldn't look like, and this brings us to lesson two. Submission is not part one, done kicking and screaming. Submission is not part one, done kicking and screaming. So the way we submit is as important as submitting itself. And if you're a parent, you know this from your, from your time with your children. Whether it's congregations to elders, whether it's employees to employers, whether it's children to parents, whether it's Christians to one another, or whether it's wives to husbands, if we're kicking and screaming when we submit, that's not really submission, that's rebellion. When I used to teach elementary school, I can't remember if I, if I shared that or not, so my, my journey just really briefly was... Uh, college, I was an ROTC, and the same day I graduated, I'm commissioned as an army officer in armor, which is tanks, and then I get out of the military, and I go into school teaching and coaching, which I thought I would do the rest of my life, except I became a Christian, and then I found my passion for ministry really increasing, and then I transitioned from teaching elementary school to being a pastor. But when I used to teach elementary school, I would tell my students that if they obeyed me, but they did it with a bad attitude, it would be just as if they disobeyed me. And so, for example, if I tell the kids, students take out their math books and there's a child that doesn't have his math book out and I tell him to take his book out and he takes it out but he slams it down on his desk, right? Or if a child is a student's tipping in his chair and I say, you need to stop tipping, but he brings his, his chair down and slams it on the floor, maybe gives him an eye roll or something like that or huffs and puffs when he does it, I would tell the students that they're going to be punished as though they didn't obey me at all. When I was in the military, I remember one of the commanders saying, what, you, what should you do with every single order you're given? And the reason that I remember him asking that question is that none of us got the correct answer. So you've got a whole group of cadets that are all trying to answer this, this lieutenant colonel's question. We said things like, make sure you know exactly what you're being ordered to do. Learn from the order. Try to do it as, as excellently as you can. And he said, take every order you're given and make it your own. And what he meant by that was when we're supposed to do something, we should do it as though it's something that we want to do. And this is especially important with submission because submission requires doing what we don't want to do. We'll talk a little bit more about this later, but if we, didn't, if we wanted to do it, then it would not involve what? If we wanted to do it, it would not involve any submission. Submission is entirely in place for when we're doing something we don't want to do. Now, one of the reasons this memory from the military is fitting, because you could listen to me say that, and I think some, some people could even maybe cringe and say, are you, Pastor Scott, are you really talking about the military and applying the military to the marriage relationship? Well, I'm not really the one who did that. Paul, the apostle, is the one who did that, because that word for submit in your Bibles is actually a military term. It means to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. 
The next thing to understand about submission is it's not a matter of superiority. So lesson two, submission is not part two, a matter of superiority. Submission is not a matter of superiority. So when people like to criticize submission, they frequently say something like, if wives were expected to submit to their husband, then that would mean that wives are inferior, and because God made women and men equal, which he did, then that means that wives must not have to submit to their husbands. But first, people can be equal and not be identical regarding their roles and responsibilities. And second, just because one person is expected to submit to someone else doesn't mean that it's an issue of inequality. And we know that because we don't apply this same logic or thinking to all of the other relationships that involve submission. For example, when citizens submit to government, when employees submit to employers, when students submit to teachers, when children submit to parents, we don't think that that means that children are, in, or children are inferior to their parents or citizens are inferior to the government or employees are inferior to employers. And so if we don't apply that same logic in all these other areas of life that involve submission, then we should not be applying it to marriage as well. But there's one more reason, if you're a Christian, an even bigger reason, that you should recognize that submission is not an, inf an issue of inferiority. If I asked you who's the most submissive person who has ever lived, there's one correct answer to this. Who would you say? Jesus, that's correct. Jesus was the most submissive person to ever live. His life was lived. Every, every moment, every decision, every breath he took was lived in submission to his Father. John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. You just think of Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, I don't want to do this. He, wa he wasn't sadistic. He, he was, did not go to the cross because it was going to be a pleasant, enjoyable experience for him. He went to the cross despite the agony of it, but he says, even though this is not my will, this is your will, and so I will go. And so my reason for mentioning this is if you think that submission is an issue of inferiority, then you have to say that God the Son is incredibly inferior to God the Father. But we know that's not the case. Uh, we know that Jesus said that he and the Father were equal. We recognize the equality between the Father and Son, even though the Son was submitted to the Father, and then the Holy Spirit submitted to the Father and the Son. If you want to talk about the opposite of submission, I mean, because there's a sense in which I appreciate that this church isn't charismatic, and I feel like charismatic churches can really get this wrong, they tend to act like one of the things that's the most like Christ is to be supernatural or to perform miracles, which is not something that I think that we can pray for healing, but I do not think that there are any Christians today that have the supernatural power that the, uh, the, the apostles did. But with that said, there'll be charismatic churches, and they'll imply or perhaps even teach that to be like Christ is to do all these supernatural things like him. The truth is to be like Christ is to live a holy life. To, to be like Christ, the few things are as as representative of Christ as being a submissive person. Now, what would be the opposite of submission? If, if submissiveness looks like Christ, then what is it that, what does rebellion remind us of? Who would be the most rebellious individual? That would be the devil, right? Few things look as much like the devil as rebellion to authority or headship. Isaiah 14, 13, he said, 
I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of God. I'll be like the Most High. The devil would not submit to God. He was not content with his position. He wanted the headship that belonged to God the Father. And so I'd say it like this. Just like Jesus is the perfect picture of submission, Satan is the perfect picture of rebellion. To submit is to be like Christ for any of us. I'm not just saying for wives, but for husbands as well in areas of life that require submission for us, and to rebel is like Satan. Now the next part of submission, lesson three, submission means part one, a wife puts her husband in a position to lead. Submission means part one, a wife puts her husband in a submission in a position to lead, excuse me. So yesterday we were at lunch with uh, Mike and his son, and my son starts kind of asking Mike, trying, trying to kind of joke with him about what is God's favorite sport? You know, does God have a favorite sport? And my son said that because he's listened to me preach long enough, and I think most people that have sat under my preaching know that I think uh, wrestling is definitely God's favorite sport, right? Okay, so he wrestles with sinners' hearts. He, he uh, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, and then we see God wrestling with Jacob. And so I kind of have that joke with, with my church. And one of the reasons that I meant, or pretty much the, the prime reason that I mentioned this right now, is that most people who do like wrestling are going to acknowledge that the enemy of wrestling is basketball because those seasons go on at the same time. And I remember when I was wrestling and then when I coached wrestling, we were, I felt like we were always losing good wrestlers to, to basketball. But even though I see basketball as the enemy of wrestling, I still have to acknowledge that there's a really great basketball movie called Hoosiers. By a show of hands, who's seen Hoosiers? Okay, if you haven't seen it, I'd encourage you to check it out. So even as, even as a fan of wrestling, I still, I still love this movie. And let, let me briefly tell you about it. And I'm getting to a point with this. Thanks for being patient with me. So Gene Hackman plays the Norman Dale, who's the new head coach of this basketball team. Nobody likes him because he's new and because he does things completely differently than the previous coach did. Dennis Hopper plays the town drunk. And so Gene Hackman makes his situation even worse because he recognizes that the town drunk, played by Dennis Hopper, has uh, considerable potential and seems to have some vast basketball knowledge. And so Gene Hackman takes the town drunk and he makes him the new assistant coach. And when Dennis Hopper shows up to the first game, he's got the suit on and he's, he's clean cut, he's sober, and he, he looks really sharp for the first time, you know, throughout for who knows how many years it's been. And so Gene Hackman wants to give Dennis Hopper a chance to prove to the townspeople, and probably even more so to prove to himself that he's valuable, that he has potential, and that he can coach or that he can lead. And so the problem is Gene Hackman recognizes that there's one thing that is standing between Dennis Hopper and him exercising the potential that Gene Hackman believes that he has, and that happens to be Gene Hackman himself. He recognizes that as long as he's part of the picture, then Dennis Hopper is never going to have that opportunity to lead or see the potential that he has. And so in the middle of one of these really pivotal games, Gene Hackman starts throwing this fit, it seemed seemingly for no reason, and this ref leans in to Gene Hackman and says, hey, if you don't calm down, I'm going to have to throw you out of this game. And if you remember the scene, Gene Hackman leans into the ref and he whispers and says, hey, you better throw me out of this game or else I'm going to throw an even bigger fit. And the ref, he says, what, what are you talking about? What did you just say? And he says, I told you, you better throw me out of this game 
or I'm going to throw an even bigger fit in here. And the rest says, well, you must have your reasons. And so he throws Gene Hackman out of the, out of the game. By this point, the team had been starting to win, so Gene Hackman had won some fans, and so as he exits the gym, half of the fans cheer because they can't stand him and are glad that he's thrown out, and then the other half of the fans end up booing, booing him because they can't stand him. So before Gene Hackman walks out of the gym, he's got the playbook in his hand, and he walks over to Dennis Hopper, and he looks him right in the eyes, and he takes the playbook, and he hands it to him, and he says, you're in charge. And then it zooms in on Dennis Hopper's face. And does anyone remember or can guess how Dennis Hopper looked at that moment? He looked scared. He looked, he looked absolutely terrified. And so can anyone guess why I'm talking about this? Ladies, this is what you have to do if you want your husband to lead. You need to get yourself kicked out of the game. Just like Gene Hackman recognized that he was the greatest obstacle to Dennis Hopper leading Many wives can end up being the greatest obstacle to their husband's leading. You need, to put yourself in a, you need to put your husband in a position to lead. And that can mean getting kicked out of the game. That can mean choosing to hand the playbook to your husband. Some husbands don't lead because their wife is already doing so. And so ladies, I want to be really honest with you. Some husbands don't lead because their wives don't let them. Some wives say they want their husband to lead, but what they really want is to keep their hands on the steering wheel. You know, I guess being in this part of the, part of the country, uh, I don't know how many of you might ride horses, but if I use a horse riding analogy, you say you want your husband to sit in the front of the saddle, but you want, kind of want to reach around and, and hold on to the reins. Other husbands don't lead because they don't want to try to compete with their wives. It's not worth the conflict and the energy for them. They don't think of leading because they know that it's, it's going to be a battle with their wives. When some wives say that they want their husband to lead, what they really mean is they want their husband to lead the way that they would. Or they say they want their husband to lead, but they really mean they want their husband to do what they want. I've seen this. I've seen some wives trying to control their husband while complaining that their husband won't lead. Some of these women, they make all the decisions. They'll control situations. And then these wives, they'll turn around and they'll say something like, I have to do everything. I'm so tired of not being able to count on my husband to do anything. So picture this if we use a driving analogy. A woman wants her husband to lead, and so she hands her husband the keys. You know, She races around to the other side of the car, and she gets into the passenger seat to ensure that he is then forced into the driver's seat. He starts driving, but then she says, turn here. Are you going to get over? Aren't you going too fast? Aren't you going too slow? Why do you always choose this lane? Aren't you going to stop? Haven't you been stopped long enough? And then maybe one of the classic ones. Looks like we're getting pretty low on gas. Now, because a wife is her husband's helper, there's nothing wrong with a wife saying, aren't we getting low on gas? And there's really nothing wrong with a wife saying, I think that we should turn here. I'm terrible with directions. My wife has been incredibly helpful over the years telling me when I should turn and when I shouldn't turn and probably pointing out when I'm going too fast or pointing out when, when we are getting low on gas. But if you start saying that too many times, then your husband's going to feel like he's nagging or that you're nagging him. And so ladies, I would just say this. If you've already told your husband a couple of times that you're getting low on gas, maybe the best thing to do would be to let your husband run out of gas. I mean, the worst thing that happens is you end up being stuck on the side of the road. Hopefully your husband, husband learns a lesson. But if you keep giving him orders, it's going to end up seeming more like a driver's ed class for him. And nobody, no husband is ever going to learn to lead that way. And so ladies, when your husband starts to lead, let me tell you what not to do. 
Don't complain about all the, all the decisions he makes. Don't get upset when he does things differently than the way you would do them. And most importantly, resist that temptation to try to take over. There are some husbands, and they never feel that weight of leadership resting on their husbands, on their shoulders, because their wife never lets it rest there. Some women, they're too busy trying to lift that weight off of their husband's shoulders to put it on their own shoulders. So ladies, if you want your husband to lead, let that weight of responsibility rest there. Put yourself behind him. Make him feel like he must lead because you won't. I can remember there have been some decisions in our lives as a family when I felt the responsibility to make a good decision because I didn't want my family to end up suffering. I mean, life-changing decisions. Going from working full-time as an elementary school teacher and if you're familiar, at least in California, there's no way that a school can get a tenured teacher out of a position. You'd have to almost commit a federal crime to ever be fired as a teacher. And I was going to leave that for a very, let's say, vulnerable position as a pastor, associate pastor as a local church that already wasn't doing particularly well financially. And then I had to leave that position in California to come up to the teaching pastor position in Washington. And to give you an idea, one of the elders had called me when I was entertaining leaving California to come up to Washington, or actually I think it was one of the deacons, and he, he said, we just want to be transparent with you that we only have the finances to pay you for eight months if the church doesn't grow. Because the previous pastor had left under very difficult circumstances, and the church had shrunk to only a few families, and they said, we're willing to step out in faith and bring you on full-time so you wouldn't have to be bivocational. But if the church doesn't grow, we can only pay you for eight months. And I had, by this time, I was in California, that church had grown, and so I had a nice, safe position there and a very good relationship with, this, with the senior pastor as he was kind of mentoring me in that associate pastor role I had. Well, the thing is, I can remember in both of these situations when we were praying about them and laboring over them, Katie had a really strong desire. She really wanted me in both situations to take the position. She wanted me to come to Washington. She was convinced I should be a senior pastor or preaching elder. She didn't feel like I should keep working with youth like I was doing in California. But there was a point in both of those decisions where I can remember Katie. When I remember where she was. I remember how she said it. We're in the living room. She's sitting on the couch across from me. And she says, you know what I want, what I think is best. I've shared it with you, but this must be your decision. I, the only way that I can feel good about this is if you're the one who decides. So if we go to Washington, I want that to be because you know that's what's best. And if you decide to go to Washington or you decide to stay in California, I'm going to completely support your decision to put myself behind you. Well, the moment Katie said that to me, it almost felt crushing, the responsibility, because I, I understood that it was my family's life is in my hands here. And it, no matter what, it was almost easier when Katie would, if, it almost would have been easier if Katie would have argued with me and kept telling me what she wanted, because that moment that she put herself behind me like that, I felt you know, cr the crushing responsibility to ensure that I didn't, didn't make the wrong decision. And so if you do something like that, ladies, what are you going to encourage your husband to do? Well, you're going to encourage him to be more spiritual. You're going to encourage him to be more prayerful. You're going to encourage him to take his relationship with the Lord more seriously. You're possibly going to encourage him to fast. You might encourage him to go talk to, to, talk to the elders. I will support whatever decision you make, is what I remember my wife saying, and it gave me no choice but to lead. But sadly, I would say that there are some men who never know what this feels like because their wife does not put them in a position to lead. 
Now, here's a very reasonable argument that some of the women might have. I have to do it because if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. And I have a few responses to this. First, do you really know that it won't get done? Maybe your husband is so used to you taking matters into your own hands that he doesn't even bother. Maybe he doesn't do it because he expects you to do it, but if he knew that you wouldn't do it, then he would step up. At some point, your husband is going to figure out, wow, she is not going to take over. She really expects me to lead. I better get my act together because if I don't do this, this is not going to get done. Now, second, here's the hard, honest truth. Maybe some things won't get done. I'm not going to stand here and deceive you. It always bothers me when I feel like pastors say things that that might not necessarily be true, and so I don't want to do that. And so maybe things won't get done. Maybe you'll put your husband in a position to lead and things will not go perfectly. Maybe it'll be messy. If we continue with the driving analogy, maybe your husband's going to you know, be, all over the ro- be all over the road at first, or maybe he is going to miss some turns. Maybe some things will fall through the cracks. But ladies, here's the thing, and give me your attention when I say this. Regardless of how your husband does leading, regardless of whether your husband gets the job done, it is still his job. It is still his responsibility. You can read through the whole Bible a hundred times and you are never going to find a verse that tells a wife to take over when her husband is not leading. There are no verses telling wives to become the leaders when the husband is abdicating that role. Helen Andelin said, Let your husband have full reign. Do not stand back with anxiety wondering if things will turn out all right. If he makes mistakes, if he gets into trouble, let him suffer the consequences. It is the only way that he will learn to lead. I think we all recognize that in any area of life, if people are given real leadership or authority, there must be the potential for them to do what? Huh? Fail. There must be the potential for them to fail. It is the only way they will learn, and it is the same in marriage. So here's my encouragement, ladies. Put your husband in the driver's seat. Make him lead, even if he's all over the road at first. Remind yourself, the driver's seat is not mine. It belongs to my husband. I will let him drive. Now, one of the main arguments that I hear from women when they don't want to submit goes like this. I don't want to submit to my husband because I think he's making the wrong decision. I don't want to submit to my husband because I think he's making the wrong decision. Essentially, a wife is saying, I don't want to submit to my husband because I disagree with him. Or she's saying, I would submit to my husband if I agreed with him. And there's a huge problem with this. It brings us to lesson three. Submission means, part two, a wife supports her husband even when she disagrees with him. Or part two, excuse me. A wife supports her husband even though she disagrees with him. When a wife tells me that she would submit to her husband if she agreed with him, she's also telling me that she does not understand submission. Because submission is entirely in place for when a wife disagrees with her husband. She wouldn't have to submit to her husband if she agreed with him. It's kind of like with my children. My children don't have to submit to me when I tell them to go play outside because they want to play outside. Or my kids don't have to submit to me if I said, hey, go get your screens and you guys can go you know, watch something. That's something that they want to do. Submission is in place for when a husband and wife have talked at length about something and they don't agree with each other. So just picture this. Earlier I said that 
wives are their husband's helper. And so let's say a husband and wife are dealing with a big decision and a husband has valued his wife's thoughts. I hope I made it clear from our earlier message that I think it's only uh, the most foolish man who would disregard his wife's thoughts, or I think it's a foolish man who would not consider his, his wife's advice regarding a situation. And so let's say that a husband has recognized his wife as his helper and that God would, would want to use her in his life, and they have talked at length, but they still disagree. The husband thinks they should go left, and the wife thinks that they should go right. Well, what's the solution at this point when you're at the standstill? I mean, is, is it paper, rock, scissors? Are you going to flip a coin? Well, God has said for the relationship to be able to go forward, at that moment, the husband becomes the decision maker. And then the wife chooses to support her husband's decision, but it's important to recognize that she's supporting a decision that she happens to think is the wrong decision. And that's entirely why God has allowed for submission. If a wife had to make sure, think about this for a moment, the wife's only going to be held responsible with whether she supports her husband. Her responsibility ends at submitting. Her responsibility does not end at making sure the right decision is made. And if you just think about this for a moment, if a wife was expected to ensure that the right decision was made, then she would never stop doing what? Perhaps arguing or pushing for that decision. If she had to make sure the right decision was made, essentially she would never submit. She would keep pushing her husband to do what she wanted. Now let's talk about why godly women submit to their husbands, and it actually has nothing to do with the wife's relationship with her husband. And ladies, this would be one of the most important things I could tell you or hope you would take away from this message. A wife's submission to her husband has very little to do with her husband and has everything to do with her relationship with Christ. And this brings us to the next part of lesson three. Submission means part three, a wife trusts God. And then go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 3. A wife's submission has everything to do with her relationship with the Lord. And many of these things that I share... I share because of marriage counseling, because of conversations that I've had with women. I've heard the complaints. I've heard the concerns. And I think many of them are completely legitimate. You picture a wife that comes to me and she says, I have trouble submitting to my husband because I don't trust him. And this could be a sincere, godly woman. She says, it would be easier for me to submit to my husband if I trusted him more. Or a woman will say, I trust God. I just don't trust my husband. But according to God's word, A wife's submission is about her trusting God. It is not about her trusting her husband. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 5. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Why does this verse say that the holy women of God used to submit to their husbands? Because of what reason? What does it say in the verse? It's not a trick question. Doesn't it say it in your Bibles too? Why would these women submit to their husbands? It says because they trusted in God, not because they trusted their husbands. A wife's submission does not have so much to do with whether she trusts her husband. It has everything to do with whether she trusts God. A wife's submission is a reflection of her trust in God. A wife's trust in God is what combats the fear, or I would even say terror, 
that a wife experiences when she submits. Look at the next verse, verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Sarah is plucked up out of the Old Testament. She's brought forward and set down in the New Testament as the example for wives. And I know what some of you ladies might be saying. You're saying, well, I would have no trouble submitting to my husband if, I was, if he was Abraham, right? <laughs> I would have no trouble submitting to my husband if he was the father of faith. Do you really think being married to Abraham was easy? I think that Sarah is brought forward as the example because of how difficult it was being married to Abraham. How many times did they have to move? What did that nomadic lifestyle look like for her? How many times did Abraham look at Sarah and say, I'm afraid for my life. You go ahead and tell them that you're my sister. Put yourself in danger. He did that twice. Do you think that was an easy thing for her to submit to? Now, I'll say, I don't have the time for it in this message. I write about in my book that there are times a wife doesn't submit, that she doesn't submit to sin, she doesn't submit to abuse. But here's what's really interesting, and I'm trying to be careful when I say this. Sarah is set down as the example for wives, and it looks like she did submit to sin, or at least a half-truth, because Abraham said, tell them you're my sister, and she was his half-sister. And even through that submission to a bad decision from her husband, twice, God ended up protecting Sarah vindicating her, and her husband ended up being rebuked. Now, I'm not saying as a guarantee that that's what's going to happen every single time for wives, but I am saying that it should serve, Sarah's submission to Abraham and the fact that she's set down as the example for wives should serve as an incredibly encouraging example for the wives here. More than likely, Sarah is set down as the example because of how difficult it was for her to submit to Abraham. And notice those words, not afraid with any terror. Not afraid with any terror. Now, in my mind, terror is what you feel when the doctor calls you and says, we have your results and you need to come in and meet with us because it's cancerous. Or terror is what you experience in the middle of the night when you get a phone call and someone says, we need you to come down to the hospital. There's been an accident with, involving one of your children. Or terror, you know, I was flying here on a plane. Terror would be if the pilot comes over the, the loudspeaker and says, brace for impact, right? But get this. Apparently, terror is also what wives feel when they submit to their husband. And God writes that down for you, ladies. That should be encouraging for you. Because what is a wife thinking? Why is it terrifying? She's thinking, well, what if my husband makes the wrong decision? What if my husband ruins our family and we're not able to eat? What if we're not supposed to do this? We're not supposed to move here. We're not supposed to go to this church. And what if I submit to my husband and there are all these problems and I suffer, my family suffers? So ladies, I hope it can encourage you that God recognizes you feel this way. He appreciates it. He puts it down in scripture for you to see. He knows that when you're called to submit to your husband, it can be terrifying. Now, let me ask you to think about something. Because submission involves overcoming fear, or let's say overcoming terror, what does it tell us about wives who submit? Because submission involves overcoming terror, what does it tell us about wives who submit? That they're what? that they're brave, 
that they're strong, that they're courageous. So ladies, please understand something. When you submit to your husband, it is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength. When you submit to your husband, it is not a sign of faithlessness. It is a sign of faithfulness. Submission, contrary to what some the world would say, and sadly even what some churches would say, is not for weak, wimpy doormats. Weak, wimpy doormats are not strong enough to submit. Women who are, who are weak, terrified, wimpy doormats rebel because they don't have the strength and the faith to submit. Submission is only for strong, mature, godly women who have a close enough relationship with the Lord to be able to do this. There are plenty of women who are too afraid to submit. They don't trust God enough. They don't have the spiritual strength to submit. And this brings us to the next lesson. Lesson three, or the next part of the lesson. Lesson three, submission means part four, a wife keeps her strength under control. Submission means part four, a wife keeps her strength under control. So I'll briefly share a story with you that I hope illustrates what we're discussing here. The summer, so we're, I was born in upstate New York, and we moved out to California when I was one, so I don't remember any of it, but I heard lots of stories growing up about my father working on his uncle's dairy farm in upstate New York. And so the summer after my eighth grade year, I flew to upstate New York to work on the same dairy farm that my father had worked on, and it was this incredibly nostalgic uh, experience getting to meet people that knew, knew my father when he was, when he was my age. And that's also when I realized I never wanted to work on a dairy farm. No offense to any uh, dairy farmers around here. It was not, not a very enjoyable experience for me. I didn't know anybody. I was 13 years old. I didn't have any friends there. I had to find things to do to entertain myself. And so one of the men, and there was nobody else, there was nobody, all of my, uh, if they were cousins or second cousins, were more like uncles to me. So being 13 years old, having no friends, and having to figure out what to do on my own, and one of the activities that I decided to do which was particularly foolish, was mess around with this bull that was chained up by himself at the very end of the barn. And so he would just kind of stand there all day, every day. We'd go into milk the cows, and I would just see that bull, and he looked like this statue just staring straight ahead, never moving. And so I decided, being this very mature 13-year-old, that I was going to try to get this bull to move. And so I would go down there, and I would mess with this bull. And one time when I guessed that the bull was not enjoying me messing around with him as much as I was enjoying it, he brought his head up behind me and he launched me into the air. And if you've ever watched rodeos on television where like the bull rider gets thrown off the bull and then his arms and his legs are flailing through the air and then he comes crashing back down to earth, that would be the correct image for what I, what I looked like at that moment. And so one of the guys who worked on the farm saw it happen from the other side of the barn and so he races down there, and he's screaming these obscenities at me. And he told me to stay away from the bull and said that I was lucky that I hadn't gotten myself killed. And then here's the last thing that he said to me. Do you see that little chain that's around his neck? And there was this little chain that was around the bull's neck that stretched to this pipe that was in front of him. That is the only thing that is holding that bull there, and he could snap it at any moment. And so basically, my cousin told me that that bull was not held there for any reason other than it allowed itself to be under the control of that chain. Now, at that moment, I thought two things. First, I thought, why not they put a bigger chain around his neck? (laughs) 
And then the second thing I thought was, that bull has an incredible amount of strength, but it's allowing itself to be subdued by that little chain. And that's pretty much how I have thought of submission over these years. Strength that is restrained or under control. Because submission is a choice. It is voluntary. It is deliberate. If it's forced, it's not submission. And so ladies, let me tell you how much strength you have. You, as your, as your husbands, we know that you could break that chain that's, that's around your neck, let's say, that, that God has put there. We know that it's nothing for you to be able to rebel against our authority. We know that you can you know, cast off our headship. In a sense, you could launch us into the air, and I have definitely seen some men, figuratively speaking, who have been launched into the air by their wives, wives who put their finger in their face and say, I'm never going to submit to you. I'm never going to do what you say. We know that you can do that. We know that there's, there, it would be nothing for you to send us come crashing back down to earth. And so we know that when you choose to submit, that you are exhibiting great strength that is subdued and being kept under control. Now, let me deal with one more question that I often hear from women. It's this, what if my husband makes the wrong decision? It's not really a question of if my husband makes the wrong decision. It's more a question of what happens when my husband makes the wrong decision. And this, let's talk about this inevitable reality. Lesson four, part one. Husbands should admit when they're wrong. Husbands should admit when they're wrong. So picture this situation. A husband and wife are driving, and the wife says, you're supposed to turn here. She's being a helper. She's not nagging him. She says, this is the correct turn, and we're going to miss it if you don't slow down. And the husband says, no, that's not right. We're not supposed to turn there. We're supposed to turn at this, at this next exit. And the wife is a godly woman, so she doesn't argue with her husband. She doesn't nag him. She just allows him to miss the turn. So it turns out that she was right and he was wrong. So ladies, I want to tell you what you're not supposed to do and then I'll tell you what you're and tell then tell you what the husband should do. So husbands, we shouldn't make a bunch of excuses when we make the wrong turn. We shouldn't explain that the last time we drove here the other day by ourselves, we did end up turning there and we were thinking about that trip and so that's why we thought we were supposed to turn there this time. We shouldn't blame it on our wives and say something like, well, you know, if you were keeping those kids behind us quiet, and it's always your kids, right? Have you ever noticed like in the Old Testament when God was talking to Moses, when the nation of Israel was bad, what does he always say about Israel? Your people, right? They stop being God's people. And I think we do that as parents too, right? So if the kids are being bad in the back seat, the husband tells his wife, well, if you'd get your kids to be quiet back there, you know, then I'd be able to pay attention to the road and then I would have known that we were supposed to turn there. So a husband shouldn't do that, make a bunch of excuses, blame his wife. Instead, we should admit we made the wrong decision. If we want to be our wife's hero, we should say, you were right and I was wrong. And if we weren't listening to our wife because we were being proud or stubborn, which are sins, then we should also repent and we should acknowledge that we sinned and we should say, I was being prideful or I was being stubborn. That's why I didn't listen to your encouragement. Will you please forgive me? When a husband admits that he made a mistake, it does a few things. First, it blesses his wife. Second, it encourages his wife to submit to him in the future. And third, it sets a good example. So brothers, we're not, we don't just lead or much of our, most of our leadership even is not based on decision-making. 
In other words, we aren't good leaders in our homes primarily by the decisions we make. We are good leaders in our home primarily by the example we set. Hopefully being humble, being like Christ. Last message, we talked about husbands getting the wives that we prepare for ourselves. And as husbands, if we're going to make excuses, if we're going to justify ourselves, if we're going to blame our wives or our children, then we're going to increase the likelihood that we end up having a wife and possibly children that follow our example and make excuses, justify themselves, and blame others. But if we'll be humble, if we'll accept responsibility for our decisions, if we'll admit when we're wrong, if we'll ask for forgiveness when we sin, if we yell, or if we're proud, or if we're stubborn, we're increasing the likelihood that we're going to have a wife and children who also accept responsibility for their actions, admit when they're wrong, and ask for forgiveness too. Now let me provide a little balance by asking you to contrast two scenarios. First, let's say there's a husband who deliberately does not listen to his wife because he's being stubborn and proud. And we talked about that in our first message, the propensity for husbands to be stubborn. It turns out he's wrong, so he shouldn't just admit he's wrong. He should also ask for forgiveness too because he was stubborn and proud. But now let's imagine another husband. And let's say this husband considers his wife's thoughts. Let's say he's prayerful. Let's say perhaps he even talks to the elders. And let's say he makes a decision that he believes is best for his family, but then he still ends up making the wrong decision. Does this husband need to be made to feel like he sinned? No, he does not. So here's the balance. While husbands should acknowledge when we make wrong decisions, if we did what we thought was best, we should not be made to feel bad about that decision. We should not be made worse to feel like we sinned. And let me address the wives. Something that makes this whole situation more difficult is if a wife submits to her husband, more than likely she has shared her thoughts and pointed out what she thought was the right decision. And so if her husband turns out to be wrong, then it equally turns out that she was right And so can you imagine the difficult situation that arises when a husband is shown to be wrong and a husband is shown shown to be wrong and a wife is shown to be right? And so this brings us to the next part of lesson four. Lesson four, husbands should admit when they're wrong. Part two, and wives shouldn't say any guesses. I shouldn't say I told you so. Very good, yeah. Wives should not say I told you so. And I'll just tell you as as a pastor, Although I don't think you have to be a pastor to be able to appreciate this. You've, you probably recognize this yourself. Don't be an I told you so person. I told you so people are always obnoxious and arrogant. There's, no, there's never really a good situation. There's never really circumstances where it's ever appropriate to say I told you so. It, it always sounds prideful and obnoxious. So just don't ever, and we tell our kids that, don't be an I told you so uh, person. If you're ever thinking of saying I told you so, just remind yourself that you're about to do something that's pretty obnoxious. So when a husband has the humility to say, I made the wrong decision, what should a godly wife say? She should say, thank you for acknowledging that. That was very humble. We all make mistakes. You did what you thought was best. Now I know what some of the ladies are saying at this point. What if my husband doesn't admit he made the wrong decision? We can talk about what husbands should do, that they should, and if they are proud, they should admit they made the wrong decision. They should admit their wife was right. If they are being stubborn or prideful, then they should also say that they're sorry. And the wives are sitting here saying, well, what if my husband doesn't do any of those things? What if he makes the wrong decision? He just makes a bunch of excuses and won't even admit that he made the wrong decision. Well, ladies, you still shouldn't say, I told you so. 
You still shouldn't say I was right and you were wrong, and you still shouldn't say you should have listened to me. That just shows that... So you, you're, a wife is tempted to say that because her husband is being proud. Well, the moment that a wife says those things, now the wife is being proud too. See, you've got a wife who's upset about the level of immaturity that her husband has sunk to, but then the moment that she says those things, she's sinking to that same level of immaturity. And one of the things that I frequently tell wives, but I can tell husbands this too, is ladies, if you want your husband to be convicted about his behavior, when he's being immature or ungodly, you need to remain mature and godly. What your husband wants is for you to sink to the same level as him. And if you do, then he's going to feel more justified in his behavior. Does that make sense? It's kind of like in in our parenting. Our kids, when we sink to their level, we look like children then too, when we're talking like them and acting like them and getting upset like them. And so ladies, if you really want your husband to be convicted, it's not going to be you acting immature, responding in the flesh, rebuking him and chastising him like he's a little child. It's going to be you remaining a godly woman so that he can be convicted about being an ungodly man who happens to be married to such a godly woman. Now let me share a situation from our marriage that I'll never forget that illustrates this lesson. I was teaching elementary school in California, and the church had um, hired me as a part-time youth pastor, so I was still able to keep teaching at the, at the elementary school. And then the church grew, and they were able to um, bring me on full-time, but it was going to involve stepping away from, from teaching uh, professionally. And so I was always kind of concerned about whether I was taking enough care of my family financially when I was a school teacher and thinking that our family could continue growing and would we be able to live off my salary. And so there, was, there had been another uh, district, or I was entertained to become a principal. I didn't really want to become a principal. I wanted to, wanted to go into ministry. But I was considering whether being a principal would allow me to take better care of my family financially. And so there was this other school district that began hiring teachers, and it was on the local naval base. We were in Lemoore. There was a naval air station there, and they received federal funding, and they also gave teachers credit for their time in the military. And so if I went to work on this, on this local naval base as a school teacher, I was actually going to be getting such a raise that it would be like I was a principal. It was like a twenty or $25,000 raise per year doing the same thing, getting to stay in the classroom with the kids like I really wanted. And so... So I'm driving, I remember driving to this uh, interview with this new district, and I'm praying, and I'm trying to hold this very loosely, and I, I'm working part-time at this church, and I'm considering, you know, should I just stay at the current district that I'm in, or should I move here or take this other position if, the, if they offer me the position? So I'm driving to, to this interview, and I'm praying, trying to hold this loosely, and I'm like, Lord, it looks to me like it'd be a really good thing for me to teach on this, on this naval base and get this raise so I can stay in the classroom with the students and keep teaching, which is what I want to do, and also uh, be able to take better care of my family. But you know what's best, Lord, and so if I should not get this position with this district, then don't give me any favor with them. And I pray that for whatever reason, they won't be interested in me whatsoever. So I interview, they send me out to the waiting room, and then they invite me, like 15 minutes later, they invite me back into the, to the interviewing room, and they slide this paper across the table, 
and they say, here's what you'll be paid. We know what you get paid to your current district because we can look at the salary schedule. And if you come work for us, you know, flip that paper over and it's going to show you what you'll be paid working here on the Naval base. And I flipped it over and it was like a $25,000 raise. And I said, we'd love to offer you this position. We'd love for you to come and work at our district with us. And so I accepted the position. I remember, you know, driving home and I called Katie. I'm like, you're not going to believe this, but they offered me the position, the teaching position there at the interview. You know, next year I'm going to start working on the Naval base and we make this much more money and it's going to be great taking care of the family and everything. So I think this was probably like 2006 when this happened. Does anyone remember what happened in 2007 and 2008? The Great Recession. And so even though I had been teaching eight years at this point, I had lost my tenure at my previous school district. So I lost my safe, secure position at my previous district. And when I went to this, to this new district, even though I'd been teaching eight years, I was one of the um, newest teachers. And so when they cut their new teachers, I was cut. I was laid off. And this is when the church in town ended up, I didn't know that they were going to do this, but this is when they stretched themselves financially and brought me on full time. But I ended up losing my position with this school district, having no idea what I'm going to do now. They're not, they're not hiring new teachers, and pretty much no school districts is hiring new teachers. I can't go back to my previous district because I had left them, and I knew that they weren't hiring anyone, and it would have looked really bad to say, hey, I left, I left you guys to work at this other district, but they, they let me go, so will you guys hire me back? I can't do that. I started applying in other districts across the, across the country, you know, wondering if anyone's going to hire me. And so Katie was also pregnant with our first child at that time, and I was really afraid of having to tell her that I had lost my my teaching position, that I was also losing our wonderful insurance that allowed me to take care of her as our first, you know, uh, child is coming. And so at this really low point, here's what Katie could have said. She could have said, you know, you're the spiritual leader of this family. You have this really good, safe, secure teaching position. Why didn't you stick with that? You say that you supposedly prayed about this. Next time you better pray a little harder. You're supposed to be the leader of our family, and then your prayers end up resulting in you being unemployed. What kind of a prayer warrior are you? You're supposed to provide for our family. Now you don't have a job or insurance. What are we going to do? That's what Katie could have done. Here's how Katie responded. I still remember that night. We were in bed, and I was pretty much feeling like a big failure and wondering how I was going to take care of my family. And so Katie, she just leaned over in bed that night, and she put her head on my chest, and she just said, I'm so excited to see what God's going to do. I'm so excited to see how God's going to provide for us. And so she was just this really great encouragement to me. I mean, it was, that was 16 years ago, 15 years ago. And I still remember it like it was yesterday, because there's basically two groups of people that we never forget. We never forget those people who stand by us at the lowest points in our life. And we also tend not to forget those people who kick us when we're down or kick us at the lowest points in our lives. And so I'm just thankful when I've reached those very low points in my life that instead of being upset with me or discouraging me, my wife has decided to stand by me. And there's been plenty of mistakes I've made. I've, I've done very foolish things as a husband and as a father. But Katie has chosen to stand by me and to be an encouragement to me. And so ladies, I just want to say, when your husband makes a bad decision, when he does something foolish, he's already feeling very bad about it. But this is one of the greatest opportunities for you to be that helper that God desires you to be for him. There are few opportunities in your life or your relationship with your husband, like those moments when he's very low and you can come alongside him and be an encouragement to him. And if you do, if you stand by him, 
when the whole rest of the world is against him, and there have definitely been some times in my, in my ministry as a pastor where it seemed like the entire world was against me, and the only person that wanted to stand by me, physical, earthly person who wanted to stand by me, was my wife, Katie. And so it's those opportunities, ladies, when you can really show to your husband or, or, or behave in such a way that he'll never end up forgetting it. And so Katie was right, got out of plan, the church ended up stretching, bringing me on full-time, even though they didn't, they didn't have the finances for it. And so I just have always appreciated how Katie encouraged me, um, which is what I really needed. She was a huge blessing to me. She never made me feel worse about my decision. And I'll conclude with this. Husbands, when we're wrong, not if we're wrong, let's be humble, let's admit it, let's not be proud, let's not be stubborn. If we sinned, then let's ask for forgiveness too. And then ladies, when your husband is wrong, don't say, I told you so. Don't make him feel worse. Encourage him. Be the helper that God desires you to be for him. Father, I thank you for this time discussing submission, the sensitive topic. I hope that it was familiar to this audience. If, if, it, if it wasn't, I do pray that whatever was from your word would be received as though from you. I don't ask that anything that was my opinion or my thoughts would be embraced by your people, Lord. But if I rightly divided scripture here in talking about submission, I pray that it would be embraced and that the seed of this teaching would be planted deeply in the hearts of each person here, especially the wise as we talked about uh, primarily talked about them during this message. I thank you for this time, Lord, three-fifths three of the way through, and sometimes I feel like a conference is almost like drinking out of a fire hose where the, where the instruction just keeps coming. So keep our hearts open and receptive to what you want to continue to say to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.